Welcome to Voices of Baby Loss, presented by me, Caroline Verdon. I'm a broadcaster and journalist, and Jen Coates, who is the Director of Bereavement Support and Volunteering at SANS. SANS is a UK-based charity whose purpose is to save babies' lives and support bereaved families. We also aim to give a voice to parents who've been touched by pregnancy and baby loss. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at SANS Charity and on Twitter at SANS UK. Which is also where you can get in touch with us if you'd like to comment on or get involved in the podcast. We are both touched by baby loss and so this topic is really close to our hearts. Coming up on this week's episode. An earlier delivery should have occurred. The cause of death for Joshua was perinatal asphyxia. Essentially he suffocated. 35 minutes that it transpires could have you know, would have made a massive difference to us as a family and the the loss that we've gone through. To be human is to err. So if you're human, you're going to make mistakes. And if you have a culture that doesn't acknowledge that mistakes are going to happen, you actually then create an environment where people are frightened about making mistakes, will cover them up, and which then means that there isn't a possibility of actually making them better. Welcome to episode 11. On this week's podcast, we wanted to talk about creating that space for parents' voices to be heard and, well, creating really a a just culture. We've heard from a lot of parents, haven't we, Jen, about how important it was to them for the word sorry to, to be said and how important it was for them to feel like there was this open culture and everybody was being very forthcoming with with facts absolutely and and we started by asking clear harmer chief executive of sands about why sorry is such an important word i think quite simply it's a human expression of compassion and empathy at the most devastating time for parents and they need to hear and feel that the people around them care about what has happened to them, that they mind on a human level. And I think by saying sorry, they can feel that compassion. They can feel that people really care. Because I suppose there must be that feeling of, oh, if I say sorry, does that mean that I'm saying I'm responsible and that I'm to blame? Because, you know, I I, I know when I first learned to drive my car, it was one of the first thing my dad said, if you ever get in a car accident, don't say sorry. It means you're, you know, admitting liability. So I suppose there must be that fear, you know, within healthcare. There is, absolutely. And I think it's really important to be clear that saying I'm sorry is not an admission of guilt and not an admission of liability. And that the GMC and the NMC, that are the the bodies that regulate healthcare professionals, are both very clear that it's not an admission of liability. In fact, they both state it is the right thing to do. So you're right, there is a fear, but it's not actually grounded in reality, if if you like. And is that new? Is that a a change to the regulations or has it always been there? No, it hasn't always been there, um, but it's been put in explicitly recently to make sure that people feel able to say sorry. Um, It's been part of uh, something that's known as the duty of candour, which is um, something which requires healthcare professionals to be open and honest and apologetic when something goes wrong. And this duty of candour was supposed to, if you like, set the scene and, and set the tone for healthcare professionals to be able to work more openly when something went wrong and to talk about what went wrong, even if, if it was something that they did that was wrong. And I, I think the really important bit here is that to be human is to err. So if you're human, you're going to make mistakes. And if you have a culture that doesn't acknowledge that mistakes are going to happen. You actually then create an environment where people are frightened about making mistakes, will cover them up, and which then means that there isn't a a, a possibility of continually improving and hearing when mistakes happen and actually making them, them better. And 
a really good example of this is the airline industry, where they have a culture where not only if something goes wrong, does everybody put their hand up and say this went wrong, but even when things nearly go wrong, so those near misses, people put their hand up and they're encouraged and rewarded for reporting when things go wrong, which means that they can become incredibly safe. And the focus is not so much on an individual being blamed, but it's much more on why did that individual make the mistake and what can we do to make sure it never happens again? So were they too tired or did they not have the right training or was the equipment faulty or was the rest of the team not there? So it's about looking at the system and saying, how can we make the system safer? And in a way, that's what at SANS we would love to see the healthcare profession being able to move to it is a culture where you put your hand up as soon as something has gone wrong. Nobody blames you, but everybody works with you to say, how do we make sure that it never happens again? And I think the examples that we've got around the world of, especially the Nordic countries where they have this kind of culture is that they have a really strong track record in maternity safety because people flag up issues and then work together to resolve them and change the system so that next time it's not going to happen the same way. So that when somebody makes a mistake next time, which they will do because they're human, actually there are systems in place that catch that and, and make sure that, um, that it's rectified. We've talked about organisational culture a lot, Clear, I think, and it's important to acknowledge that staff will make mistakes because we're human and important to allow those mistakes to be recognised so they can be learned from. Absolutely. And I mean, when you think about what happens to the brain when you're frightened, which is exactly what happens when you think you're going to be blamed, um, the brain is sort of flooded and that, that kind of the, the stress and the cortisol levels and that inability to actually make safe decisions, you get that feeling of overwhelm. And so actually by having a system which blame underpins a lot of the responses, we're creating a more unsafe or a less safe environment because of what we're doing to people's brains having to work in that kind of environment which is incredibly sad because when you think almost every healthcare professional, midwife, doctor, nurse, goes in to work trying to do the very best they can. And then if they're frightened and anxious the whole time, they're more likely to make mistakes. And the more they find themselves in that position, the less confidence they have and, and the less able they are to provide the sort of care that we know that they would like to. So it's it's clearly terrible for parents having an unsafe um, maternity system. And I care passionately about making that right and making those differences. But, but also it is so unkind to healthcare professionals to have a system that's so difficult to work in. Especially because, as you say, the healthcare profession calls on people who have that innate sense of wanting to help and wanting to fix and wanting to make things better and you know it's only human isn't it that yes you know you're going to go into that career you're going to want to make things better but there are going to be instances where sadly you've made things worse like that that is human nature but it feels like it's something that that's not often talked about no and uh, i think because it's it's so difficult it's it's such an emotive subject and that kind of deep fear about what will happen to you if you make a mistake and you do something wrong where will that take you and as you say you've chosen to do it because you you care passionately about it and you know if you make a mistake where will that that take you but I think it's it really important to listen to bereaved parents and what we hear over and over again is that if something has gone wrong, parents want to understand what went wrong and want to know that the next time 
things will be different and nobody else has to go through what they have been through. And very, very rarely do you hear any sort of blame attached to individuals and, and the generosity of bereaved parents in not attaching blamed individuals who they can see are trying to do their best in most instances. But what they really want is that nobody else has to go through this again. And we, until we can set up a culture where we can honestly say to bereaved parents, there will be true learning from this and we can make sure that this doesn't happen next time. I think we're letting bereaved parents down. And this is why SANS works so hard in this area to, it, it is messy and it's difficult because it's about healthcare professionals' feelings, their approach to work and culture. It's not kind of cut and dry, but until we get this right, we're not going to be able to save the baby's lives today, tomorrow, the next day that could have been saved with safer maternity care. And so what work's being done at the moment then by SANS to sort of move this forward? So I think one of the, the most important things is putting the voice of bereaved parents centrally. And um, if you read both the, the, the devastating Ockenden report and um, the, the East Kent report, both of them come out with one of the most important things we can do to improve safety and to improve that kind of continuing improvement is to put the voice of parents centrally. And I think that it is often seen as being a really difficult thing to do. Everyone will sort of say, yes, incredibly important to have the, the voice of bereaved parents, but then feel very, very anxious about how they do that. You know, how do we then involve parents? How do we ask them? Do they want to be involved in the review of their baby's death? How do we ask them about their experiences? Will we make it worse? Will we hear things that we never wanted to hear? And what SANS can do is help healthcare professionals find the words and use the right letters and emails and approaches to actually make it feel okay for parents to be involved, because although a few parents really want to be involved, whatever the circumstances, many, it feels quite difficult to know why would they, how, and what science can do is connect the different bits, help healthcare professionals use the right words to invite parents in and the right timing, because often you have to ask several times and in different ways, but we can also help parents feel comfortable that actually this is okay, it's safe for them, they will be looked after, we'll help look after them as well, and it will get them to the point they want to be of making sure that nobody else goes through what they've been through. We've also done a lot of templates of letters to be sent out and suggestions for wording to use and, and how to explain things. And I think also making sure that the parents' voices are central when it comes to the work around communicating with parents. So we have got some research that's involved with how do you communicate with parents and actually putting parents at the heart of that so that they can explain how they want to be communicated with. And then that research can inform the kind of training that goes forward. So I, I think we've got a a really crucial role in making sure that parents are heard and listened to in a way that helps them and helps everybody else as well. And when you talk about the right words to use and letter templates and things like that, what sort of words in the past have you seen that have been used that have just been way off the mark? And what are the suggestions for replacements? It's the using at least, for instance, in order to, in a way, diminish and anything that is a way of apologising for what happened, but then caveating it with actually, you know, but of course it was nothing to do with us or um, it doesn't really matter because at least you can have some more babies or all of those terrible, terrible things you can hear. So I think 
one element is just trying to diminish the parents' devastation in order to feel better yourself, which is one of the worst things you can do for the parent. But actually, it's not good for the healthcare professional because deep down they know that actually that's a pretty shoddy thing to have done and don't feel better after that either. I think also another thing that we hear, which isn't helpful at all, is using over-technical language. So almost hiding behind the kind of the technicalities of how you explain what might have happened, because that then again emotionally distances you from the pain of the parents, because you can talk about, you know, results in, in language that you might talk to another healthcare professional about, but that kind of then makes you feel that you're not being affected directly. And I think also just very thoughtless language, putting in phrases that you would have used anyway about kind of being called for follow-up appointments and things. But obviously, you're not going to have follow-up appointments postnatally in the same way that you would if your baby had lived and, and you would go through the system in the same way. So I think there are all sorts of ways that people either use the wrong language or the wrong approach in order to protect themselves or because they're, they're not really thinking things through enough. And a lot of parents we've spoken to have talked about how important the early comments and the early words that are used by healthcare professionals were and how it sort of set in motion their grieving process, I suppose, to give them that ability to grieve in whichever way they needed to, which is it's so important for, you know, for the future of those individuals, which is important enough as it is, but also so important for the work being done to change outcomes in the future. Yes, no, absolutely. And I think safe maternity care and excellent bereavement care are so closely entwined and obviously really excellent bereavement care focuses very much on how things are talked about straight after the baby's death and how that feels for parents but that being listened to and being involved and feeling that people care and that it it matters not only is the important for bereavement care and those feelings straight away but actually makes for much safer care as well because that is that just culture where you're open to learning but you're also want to be accountable for your own behavior and improve it in the future as well and one of the things that we've spoken about was about parents having that strength and that information to be able to say during the maternity process I know something's wrong. I am I'm not happy with what you've said and I would, you know, like a second opinion and to actually be able to have that strength to make those comments. You're right and I think um that that so listening to, to parents is really important if the worst has happened and a baby has died, but it's clearly an important part of maternity safety is listening to parents all the way through pregnancy and labour and birth. And what's really, really sad reading reports like Ockenden and East Kent is the number of cases where if the woman had been listened to, the outcome would have been different. And I think that um, maternity safety and listening respectfully to mothers, to parents and acting. You can't emphasize the importance enough of that. And I think it's it's something that where it's done well, it's done incredibly well. And I think this is really important not to take away from the fact that there are there are hospitals and healthcare professionals who do this outstandingly well. And not only is that all credit to them, but actually it holds a mirror up for everybody else to say this can be done. And I think it makes it even sadder, the fact that um, there are places where, where it can't be done. And I think it, the, the other important thing ar around this, you know, listening respectfully to women and picking up where there are problems is the more senior healthcare professionals modelling that kind of behaviour of respecting 
parents when they are talking and listening to them. Because if you see, you know, the senior healthcare professionals in your hospital or trust communicating effectively, you're going to copy that. And I think modelling that behaviour of listening is really, really important. Because I suppose, you know, from a parental point of view, when you're in that hospital, you don't want to cause a fuss. You don't want to think that you're going to be the one that they're talking about in the staff room or that they're going to ignore you or, you know, refer to you as the one who's always kicking off and asking for another opinion. And Oh, my goodness, that, that isn't that isn't their, their job. It, they, it should, instead, flipping it on its head, it should be healthcare professionals making it as easy and possible for you to express any fears you've got as a parent. The onus is absolutely not on the parent. Um, it should be on healthcare professionals to um, invite those opportunities. And in fact, interestingly, they are co-designing some of the, the new kind of safety interventions that are being looked at in maternity care to include points where healthcare professionals have to stop and check. Do they know how parents are feeling? Have they asked parents? Are they comfortable with what is happening? Do they feel they understand? Have they been listened to? And I, I thought that was really fascinating. You know, in a way, it shouldn't have to be done. That if, but if you factor into the tools points where people have to stop and think, have I checked that the parent is comfortable? Have I asked them if they're anxious or if there's anything else they want to share? Have I taken that into account as I look at the whole situation and think, is this safe at the moment or is there anything else we should be doing? Which is hopeful, even if it's a bit sad that it has to be explicitly factored in. It's also about the opportunity to give parents control in a situation where they have no control. And if they can participate in processes and conversations and reviews, that is an element of control in what is an incredibly destabilising situation. Yes, absolutely. And I think that ties in in, in, in a way to also allowing parents to be in the driving seat when it comes to their involvement. And so it's very tempting to say, um, you will be involved by, you know, filling in this questionnaire by next Wednesday, or you will be involved by turning up for this meeting and staying for 15 minutes and telling us what you knew, rather than saying, we would love to hear what happened and how you feel and what you think might have been done differently. How would you like to share that information with us? When would you like to share that information with us? Um, and then, then you're, you, as you say exactly, Jen, you have that element of control. You know, not only is my story important, an important part of this jigsaw of trying to understand what has happened, but actually, I will tell my story on my own terms and it will be important because of that. And I think, again, that's really, it's not normally how healthcare professionals work in terms of, you know, factoring everything in. And it, it, it just takes a, a kind of a deep breath and doing things in a different way. It feels like this culture of openness and honesty is such a game changer. This is the, the key to unlocking. I mean, I often talk about, you know, if you're going to save babies' lives, you need to understand why babies are dying. And it's a bit like being on a long road and you can look at the horizon and the horizon bit is research, which is fantastic, but it'll be, you know, 10, 20 years before that probably has a real impact. And in looking at percentile markers and things. Absolutely, that should be going on. But lots of people are only looking at the horizon. And actually, looking at the road right in front of you is maternity safety. And because that is such an emotive and difficult 
place to be because it's about it's about error it's about human emotions it's about people trying to do their best or failing to do their best or all of those bits that most people think oh it's much nicer to look at the the kind of the lab coats and the test tubes on the horizon and actually not go into that space where people are doing trying to their best but it's not working and things but unless we look at the road straight right in front of us we're not going to save the baby's lives absolutely must have their lives saved here, now, tomorrow, the next day, not in 10, 20 years time. And it's, it is a difficult space to be in. And I know Jen knows this, that it's really difficult to explain succinctly to the outside world what we're doing and how important this is. But it's it, without it, we, we're just not going to make that difference. And that this national ambition to halve the number of deaths um, by 2025, which is that it is inspirational to be trying to do that anyway, but it's important, it's really important that we try and, and use this as a kind of a marker that it can be done. So we absolutely need to save the baby's lives, but we need to show everybody from governments to the healthcare professionals themselves, everybody, that this isn't just a pipe dream. This is a reality. It is possible to save babies' lives. So back in sort of 2011, 2012, um, when 17 babies were dying every day, and now we're down to 13, the official line, and I was looking at this in the archive, was that stillbirth was at an irreducible and unfortunate minimum, i.e. there was nothing more that could be done. And it was that was life and people just needed to get on with it. And that is so unacceptable. And the fact that we've managed to be part of bringing the numbers down so much already shows what rubbish it was. It just isn't at an irreducible minimum. Of course it's not. As long as a single baby is dying because we could have improved care, it's absolutely not at a minimum. But we need to be able to demonstrate that more money, time, resources, effort needs to go into this um, because it makes a difference. I think from my perspective, before I became a member of this club that no one wants to be a member of I just had the presumption that the babies who were dying from stillbirth were dying because of science and actually it is utterly devastating to find out the number of cases where that isn't true they're not dying because of something that we haven't invented yet or because of some knowledge that we don't have yet they're dying because we're simply not putting into practice something that we already know, something that we're already being asked to put into practice and something that's relatively easy to do. And that's just heartbreaking. I mean, you you summed it up so beautifully there, Caroline, because it's, it's exactly that. You don't think it could be anything other than some sort of test tube thing that needs to happen out there because it it's so awful terrible to think that it's because care isn't isn't safe enough it isn't a place anybody really wants to go to think that we wouldn't be trying and everybody is that's the awful thing about it everybody is trying all the midwives and doctors are trying to give safe care but that goes back to the we need to have a culture where it's accepted that humans are and that we need to look at a system that actually, if the, a mistake does happen, catches that and makes sure that, that nothing terrible happens. I think from so many conversations that we've had at SANS over the years, it, it really shows how important sorry is and what a huge difference it makes to somebody's bereavement journey and the way that they are able to process what has happened and to move through their bereavement in a way that is is right for them. One of the parents that we spoke to for this podcast is Vijay and 
for me, I think listening to his story, it's been one of the hardest stories to listen to, not only because of things that went wrong and not only because of thinking about his son, who Joshan, who could and should be here today, but also the devastating effect in addition to that, that having to fight to hear the word sorry has had. My wife was pregnant with Joshin and experienced kind of a very smooth pregnancy. There were no problems. We have our son, Jaden, who was five at the time. So she'd been through pregnancy before and this was a smooth pregnancy and we felt much more ready as parents this time around. I think as a, as a father, you're always anxious because there's not much you can do other than preparation. So getting all the changing tables ready and buggies and things like that. But we, we felt very ready. Our due date was the 28th of May. And on the bank holiday weekend on the 26th, we'd been for a really lovely family day, the three of us. So we'd been to the cinema, we'd been for a meal. And at that time, my wife, during the meal, she was experiencing Braxton Hicks contractions, but all very comfortable. And we kind of knew that anything could happen at any time. It was that evening, about 10 o'clock, where the contractions became a little bit more intense. And she'd had a bleed, um, which really worried my wife and myself as well. And we weren't sure whether this was you know, normal, expected or what to do. So she'd called our local hospital and I think she'd called before the, the actual bleed. And they said, we'll see how things go. Then she'd had the bleed and they advised us to come in. So we were waiting for my parents to come and look after our son who was sleeping at the time. It was about 10.30 when we got to the hospital. But as soon as we got to the the hospital, my wife's pain changed from contraction pains to continuous pains. It was um, in triage, so one of the midwives assessed my wife and we told her about the bleed. She could see that my wife was in pain. My wife couldn't move into the position that she wanted her to be in. And um, things didn't seem right. It didn't seem like the labour that she went through for our first son, we could both see that. And she told the midwife very clearly that these pains are something else. There's some, something else is going on here. This doesn't feel right. But the midwife felt, you know, you were seven centimetres dilated. The baby's going to be here any minute and kind of continued as per normal and didn't seem concerned by the bleeding. Things kept on deteriorating after that in terms of my wife's pain. We were then moved to the delivery suite where attempts were made for a natural birth. Um, the registrar eventually came, assessed and uh, progressed with those plans for a natural delivery. The midwives were aware of decelerations. At the time, I didn't know much about what it meant, but I could hear them amongst themselves mentioning decelerations, but they were struggling with the Doppler that they were putting on the, the outside of my wife's stomach to, to measure our, our son's heart rate. But there was no sense of urgency or concern and nothing was mentioned to us. They kept on giving us reassurances that the baby's going to be here any minute. But those reassurances didn't feel right because my wife was in, in too much pain. And when our son was born five years earlier, we would be talking in between contractions and um, communicating. But this time around, she was just in so much pain all the time and mm -hmm. it, it, it didn't feel right. Eventually, the registrar consented for a caesarean section and an anaesthetist came in and performed the spinal anaesthesia. And we were then moved to theatre. And this is all kind of within about an hour and a half. So we got there at 10.30 and by midnight we were in theatre. And at that point we expected a caesarean delivery. And, and the anaesthetist told me, he said, you know, I've been doing this for 25 years. You're going to have your baby in two minutes. I look at the clock. My wife's in theatre. I'm sitting with her, holding her hands, and we're waiting for the caesarean section. But the obstetrician continues to, to go for a natural delivery, asking my wife to push. And then she tries the Von Tues. I think four steps were attempted as well and half an hour passes and at 12.35 the cesarean section was performed but there was no baby crying, there was no information given to us. The next thing we know is that everything kind of froze in theatre, the registrar, the obstetric registrar didn't know what to do, it was literally a deer caught in headlights and I was aware of my wife hemorrhaging on the theatre floor, you could see and hear her bleeding. On top of that, they were doing the CPR for our son. We, you know, we didn't know whether we were having a son or a daughter. So, if, you know, if we kept um, kept that a surprise, but nobody was telling us what was going on. But we were aware of the um, 
the then panic of the paediatricians that were being called to try and resuscitate our son. We could hear the, uh, the ECG monitors flatline, the uh, call for the emergency drugs, and eventually the call for the anaesthetist that was looking after my wife, who was hemorrhaging out to come over and help. So he had to go over and intubate our son. Meanwhile, my wife's blood pressure was dropping a lot. You could see her colour dropping and she was asking what was going on. And so it's my role as a father during that time, a father and a husband, was to reassure my wife. I didn't want to create any panic. I was trusting um, all the healthcare professionals there. I, I, I wanted to trust all of them, but it was very difficult because nobody was being open and communicating with us. That's the one thing that I... I still struggle with that nobody explained to us beforehand or during what was going on we never knew the extent of what the problems were it was about mm -hmm. 20 minutes when i then asked a midwife you know what's going on and she said well you, you've had a baby boy and they're trying to resuscitate him he's got a very weak heart rate and he's going to be transferred maybe to a, a neonatal unit i thought okay well, at least he's got a heart rate. And uh, then it was a question of what's going to happen to my wife. And at that point, again, you could see her color dropping. You could see her blood pressure dropping and she didn't look well. And uh, another anesthetist, another anesthetic or a consultant anesthetist came in and an obstetric consultant had been called from home to come in as well. So this is maybe an hour after we'd got to theater. At that point, there was a sense of control in theater where you felt that those two consultants and clinicians were more in control of the situation. So the consultant obstetrician then began to repair and stop the bleeding for my wife. I still didn't know at that time what had gone on. And later it was explained to me that she'd had a uterine rupture. She was in so much pain during that repair under the spinal anaesthetic that the consultant anaesthetist converted it to a general anaesthetic. And that's when I was asked to leave and she'd vomited just before that and and didn't look well at all and I saw her blood pressure and um, at, at that point I was preparing myself to be a widow I thought I was going to lose my wife and I was thinking that my newborn son may not make it either and that's probably one of the most difficult times uh, in my life and, and during this whole process because so little information was given to me but I was almost forced to be a witness to both whilst they were resuscitating my newborn son and whilst my wife was essentially uh, hemorrhaging to death. Um, I was then led to um, a, a waiting area where we'd been before and one of the midwives explained to me, the doctors would come and talk to me later on and that Joshua was in the intensive care area. But it was a long time before anyone did, but they explained that my wife had had a, a ruptured uterus and it was just a very rare. So at that point, I'm Googling on my phone, you know, what I'd never heard of it before. I didn't know what a ruptured uterus was. I'd never heard of it. This was something that NCT classes hadn't prepared me for or any reading that I had done. I just didn't understand. I was so confused that a few hours earlier, we had just gone out for a meal and everything was fine. She'd been having small contractions and it was a normal pregnancy. And my wife is fit and healthy and it, nothing made sense to me. I didn't understand how from 10.30 where labor started to two hours later, I'm almost losing my wife and my newborn son. Um, there was limited information on, on online about ruptured uteruses. There's a story in America about a lady talking about how her child survived and how she survived. So I, I felt maybe there's a bit of hope here, but I, I didn't understand what was going on. Eventually, maybe an hour later, a consultant paediatrician let me see Josh and, and um, you know, he was on a ventilator, um, IV lines, tubes everywhere. And with every ventilated breath he was taking, he was bleeding from his mouth and from his nose. And it, it didn't look well at all. And that consultant tried to explain to me that the prognosis wasn't good and that he'd been starved for a long time, but they're waiting for a transfer team to come and make an assessment. So at that point, I'm still hopeful that they might be able to transfer him and there may be a chance. My wife then came out of theatre, I think it was maybe three hours after that, 
and um, fortunately her surgery had gone well. The surgeon came and spoke to me and said they were able to repair her uterus. She didn't have to have a hysterectomy, which would have been the, the alternative if they, if they couldn't. And he was confident that she'd make a full recovery at that point and that she'd be brought to, to see me. So that, that was kind of one relief, at least, you know, I've still got my wife and she's healthy. Um, the transfer team then came over and, and assessed Josh and they, they felt he wasn't stable enough to transfer and they felt that he had been starved of oxygen for too long to make any kind of recovery from the state that he was in. And they asked then for me to, to make the decision to remove him from the ventilator um, because they wouldn't transfer him. So, uh, as a, again, I'll, I'll always go back to a few hours earlier as a, as a family just any day expecting to deliver a healthy baby to then all of a sudden having to make a decision on your own at four in the morning as to whether you take your newborn son off a ventilator or not and there's no one to call so you know you want to call your parents and my parents are a bit older now and you don't want to wake them up I didn't have my wife to to ask and she was just coming out of theatre in recovery so you're very much on your own trying to make a massive decision and you turn to the professionals around you and ask them, you know, for their honest advice and what we should do and what I should do. And they all felt, you know, the prognosis was too poor. And having seen him and, and seeing Josh on the ventilator and the way he was, you know that you could tell there's no chance. So when my wife came out of recovery, I explained that to her and she agreed and um, we we decided to take him off the ventilator. They brought him to us and he's removed from the ventilator. And unfortunately, we were allowed to, to hold him um, for those precious few minutes that we could while he took his kind of last few breaths with us. Um, and th that's one of those bittersweet moments where as a father, you that's the moment you, you wait so long for when the baby's delivered to hold your newborn baby. The, the bond for the mother's different because she's nurtured and, and had that bond longer. But for, for a father, that's the moment you, <clears throat> you really, really wait for. So, <clears throat> sorry, it was amazing to hold him and at least hear those breaths, but you're dying inside as well because you know that there's only a few breaths that he's got with you but we treasured those moments and those photos with him and then he took you know his last breaths in my arms and um and and died peacefully um so the time after that was all very difficult. It's a lot to go through for my wife, a lot for her to go through. She's recovering from surgery. She's just lost her baby. Um, really, really difficult time. And she'd lost so much blood during surgery and, and the ruptured uterus as well. But we, um, we sat down together afterwards, you know, by her bedside, I held her hand and um, we both said we have to make sure we can do everything we can to ensure no parent has to go through this. Within minutes of it happening, we, we said that. And that was our, always our focus. My wife was in hospital for about a week and, and then came home. And my focus then immediately afterwards becomes then making sure our son, Jaden, who was five at the time, um, isn't too affected by what's going on. We have to be honest to him because he was expecting to have a, a new sibling as well. And for, you know, the six months before we've been building him up to that, you're going to be a big brother and, you know, all that excitement for him. And then to have to explain to a five-year-old, um, that was really difficult. And something that, again, you're just not prepared for as a father. Where do you turn to for that advice and how do you explain it to him? Those first few days are really difficult because he'd ask, say why did it why did that have to happen why did he die and it's so difficult to explain that to him but you have to be as honest as you can and as supportive as you can for him and having Jade and my son I think for me was um, something that's kept me going so when you're completely broken from an episode like that having him gives you that that drive to keep going and keep functioning uh, essentially 
So he, yeah, he was amazing um, during that time and, and a fantastic distraction because it forced me and my wife to, to still do things for him, still take him to school, still do drop-offs, still do his clubs. My role as a father had to carry on. You can't, can't stop. And then it's nurturing and um, helping my wife get back to, to fitness. So when she came home, there was all the medication she'd be taking. She had to be injected with blood thinners and she wasn't very mobile for those, those first, um, first few days, a week or so. So then your focus becomes recovering and helping her recover and also encouraging her not to stay in too much, not to stay at home too much and to, to, to get up and see people and, and go to school and, and do drop offs and, and, um, and talk to people. And we're really lucky in the area we live in. We've got a fantastic network of school mums who really um, looked after her. We've got a fantastic family network who, who were really supportive during those first few weeks as well. Time, time helps. I, a lot of my, my grief and confusion and brain fog that I used to have would, would be trying to understand how it all happened and what went wrong, which no one could really explain to me. We, we had meetings with the hospital, the obstetric consultant, head of midwifery, the lead for obstetrics as well, and the lead of pediatrics. We had you know, three or four different meetings and everyone kept on saying to us, you know, you've been very unlucky and nothing could have been done to stop this or prevent this. And nobody could have recognized this, which you try to accept. But in those two hours while we we're at the hospital and in the unit, we didn't feel that people had control over the situation. We didn't feel that everything was done in, in our best interest and we didn't feel the best decisions were made and the, the decisions weren't made promptly. Uh, one thing that stood out during that time was that they didn't have fetal scalp electrodes. So they were really struggling with getting a consistent heart rate for, for Josh. And, um, and I remember when, when our first son Jaden was, um, in labor, they, they used the fetal scalp electrodes, but they didn't use them this time. And that was, you know, five years earlier. So I thought, well, maybe things have changed and they don't use them. I didn't, I didn't want to ask, didn't want to say anything to anyone. As someone that's worked in a hospital for, for many years and in theater, I felt like I had to trust the team and let them do their, their work. But that was something that, that kind of played in my mind quite a lot. And it transpired later. They didn't have those fetal scalp electrodes. The ones they had were broken and they didn't have any in the department on that evening. But the hospital always maintained that that wouldn't have made a difference. Um, I reached out to Sands and uh, via email got in touch to Charlotte Bevan. And she was really helpful. I, you know, I said to her, look, I just don't understand what's going on. I really want to speak to somebody that can just help me understand. I don't feel the hospital are explaining it enough. And, and she kind of put me in touch with her an obstetrician that has done some work for Sands and who looked over the notes kindly and, and gave an opinion, which was you know really helpful. She also put me in touch with um, Harry Richford's grandfather and he, he was incredibly supportive, incredibly knowledgeable about the systems that were, were going on and gave some excellent advice for me as well because after the event, what happens is you're told the hospital will do an internal report then you have the HSIB that are going to come and interview you and interview all the staff, but none of it makes sense. You don't understand because nobody's been through it before. You don't know when these things are going to happen and you don't know what format they're going to take and how long the reports will take. It transpired the HSIB came and saw us within four weeks. They did their report. They interviewed everyone else, but that whole process took about nine months and that's where COVID came in as well. With the HSIB report, it was drafted and finalized several times and the report kept on being rejected by the hospital. So although they took one interview from us, we saw second and third drafts because the hospital were constantly changing things about the report. When I spoke to HSIB, they were the ones that, that advised me that we need legal representation if a inquest is, is pursued. And again, I'm jumping ahead, but there were so many things that happened that were out of our hands. So in the days afterwards, the coroner's office called on my mobile and asked me what had happened. And it was on the basis of the information that I gave them that they decide whether they want to do a post-mortem or not. 
So post-mortem's carried out. We don't have a say in it. It's carried out, and that took four weeks. After that report, the coroner decides whether they want an inquest. But that decision was only made after the HSIB report was completed, which was then delayed and being further delayed. So I think in terms of my grief and us as a family to, to move on, we couldn't really because all of these reports and processes were always going on and always being delayed. I think it was almost a year later the HSIB report was finalised and the decision was made to get to inquest. And um, the the inquest actually took place in March of this year, so you know almost three years later. And for me and my journey, the inquest helped my understanding tremendously. I felt our coroner was really fair. She asked excellent questions of all the staff. The staff attended and the expert witness that the coroner appointed looked over all the notes and and confirmed that you know things could have been done better and had the right equipment been in place decisions being made sooner an earlier delivery should have occurred the cause of death for joshua was perinatal asphyxia essentially he suffocated and 10 minutes earlier is a, a massive amount of time if your child is suffocating two minutes earlier, any amount of time earlier would have made a difference. And we, we think back to those wasted 35 minutes that it transpires could have, you know, would have made a massive difference to us as a family and the, the loss that we've gone through. So it's taken a year to get to where we are, or sorry, you know, three years. Um, and finally for the hospital to acknowledge that, that things, mistakes were made and things could have been done differently. The problem with the, the inquest is that it, that's it, it's finished. So you wait all this time for that, that verdict, but nothing changes. You know, you build yourself up for, for that, that um, few days and that outcome, but you're still at your loss. So that, that's where we are now, that I think as a couple, myself and, and my wife, we, we were made to feel that nothing could be done differently and we were very unlucky, but we knew that wasn't the case. and coroner's inquest confirmed that so we we know the hospital could have and should have done more and that's really been our, our kind of goal and focus is to make sure that they change and ensure that that doesn't happen to other people one of the things that we're asking everybody that we speak to um is hopes for the future and i just wondered what your hopes for the future were Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, you, the obvious things would be that every maternity unit has to have all the basic equipment, all the essential equipment. You, you, and if not an honest approach, that if a, an expectant mother calls up saying she's in advanced labour and a hospital doesn't have the right equipment, just be honest and say, please go to the next hospital. It might only be a, a 10 minute drive away, but that might save someone's life. I think just transparency and honesty from hospitals. Our intention was to never punish any professional that was involved. It was just open dialogue, honest dialogue, and to ensure it doesn't happen again. That's all we wanted. And so if, if that barrier can be broken down where hospitals, their risk assessment teams, their lead clinicians are less defensive, just more open, and just admit where things have gone wrong and say, sorry and ensure they don't happen again then we'll have one family less going through what we have voices of baby loss is an under the mast creative audio production